I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising, marketing, and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. This is a very special episode for me personally. We are celebrating our one-year anniversary this week with the release of our 12th episode. The past year has been quite a personal journey as I have had the pleasure of discussing a wide range of topics that are of particular interest to me in my professional career as an advertising attorney. Advertising lawyers play a critical role as strategic advisors in assisting clients in achieving their marketing objectives while managing legal and regulatory risks. As a former in-house lawyer, I've experienced firsthand the challenges of trying to strike the right balance between business realities and legal considerations for marketers. And it is this experience that has taught me the value of collaborating with professionals from other disciplines, including non-legal professionals, to find practical solutions that can be operationalized. When I started Perfect Balance with our Manat team a year ago, I had a simple goal of exploring a broad spectrum of issues that I, as an advertising attorney, find relevant in my practice. Thanks to all my Manat colleagues and other guests outside Manat who have contributed their time and share their knowledge and experience on this podcast, I was fortunate to realize my goal and cover so many topics that I think many marketers do or should care about. For this episode, we asked our listeners to tell us what they would like to be discussed on Perfect Balance and we chose four topics. First, the new self-regulatory guidelines for children's advertising issued by the Children's Advertising Review Unit, better known as CARU. Second, the Federal Trade Commission's final Made in USA labeling rule. Third, the new state privacy laws that have been in the news in 2021. And finally, third-party cookie deprecation. To discuss these four topics, I went to my guest from the first three episodes of this podcast, my fellow partners, Jesse Brody and Jeff Edelstein in our advertising, marketing, and media practice, and Brandon Riley in our privacy and data security practice. For the first topic on CARO's new guidelines, I went to Jesse to discuss the key updates. Jesse, in July of this year, CARO published a new set of self-regulatory guidelines for children's advertising, which you covered in a Manat Advertising Law newsletter earlier this year. What are some of the key changes? The Children's Advertising Review Unit, commonly referred to as KRU, which is a part of the Better Business Bureau National Programs, released revised children's advertising guidelines over the summer. The guidelines contain some notable changes regarding children's advertising and will go into effect in the beginning of 2022. The guidelines, which previously only covered advertisements addressed to children aged 12 and under, now will cover children ages 13 and under. This change is intended to align with COPPA and promote uniformity in children's advertising. I understand there are some important updates applicable to video game advertising. What are the new guidelines and what tips do you have for video game makers and advertisers to comply with the guidelines? With respect to video game advertising, KRU's updated guidelines now emphasize the need for transparency and recommend that exit mechanisms from in-app or in-game advertisements be clearly labeled and easy to find. In mobile formats, it can be easy for the line between app content and in-app ads to get blurry. In-app ads can look like organic posts from users, such as promoted posts on Twitter or Instagram. They can also take the form of additional features within the app itself. To make sure child users can tell when content is advertising, KRU's guidelines state that any ads integrated into the content of a game or activity should be easily identifiable as ads. For example, in a child's gaming app that displays a glittering treasure box icon, 
which when clicked shows an ad prior to issuing in-game rewards, that ad must be properly disclosed as such. Absent a disclosure that makes it clear clicking on the treasure box will display an ad rather than just another feature of the game itself, the treasure box would likely need to comply with KRU's new blurring guideline. Knowing how much time my own kids spend playing video games, it's not surprising to me at all that the new guidelines focus on requiring these in-game, in-app disclosures. What other significant changes should advertisers pay attention to in the new guidelines? Another new addition is that KRU advises advertisers to not use unfair, deceptive, or other manipulative tactics aimed at pressuring children to view ads or make purchases or to unknowingly engage with advertising. The treasure box feature described earlier could likely manipulate a child to engage with an ad. App developers and advertisers should take special care not to cause children to unknowingly or inadvertently engage with an ad. Other manipulative tactics could include making the ad so small or indistinguishable from another feature in the app that the child accidentally clicks on it. The position, color, or size of the ad should not be disguised in a manner that will manipulate children. To comply with KRU's guidelines, developers should take care to ensure that any ads served within apps and games are easily recognizable as ads. What about exiting an ad once a child knowingly or inadvertently clicks on an in-game ad? The new guidelines also state that methods to dismiss or exit an ad should be clear and conspicuous to children. The guidelines do not mean that all in-app or in-game ads must have an exit method, but they do require that any available exit method must be noticeable and understandable to children, such as a large X on the ad that contrasts with the background color of the ad. These are all major significant changes. Anything else? The new guidelines governing in-app or in-game purchasers require advertisers, apps, or games that offer purchases to make it clear to children that purchases involve real money. This guideline was put into place partly due to reports of children unwittingly spending hundreds and thousands of dollars in apps, likely because children did not understand they were using the parents or guardians' real hard-earned money. Thank you, Jesse, for explaining these very important updates to CARES guidelines. Now for our second topic, the FTC's final Made in USA labeling rule, I went to Jeff to discuss the new rule. Jeff, the FTC's final Made in USA labeling rule recently went into effect in August. With so much emphasis on products made in USA in the past several years, I think this final rule is really important to protect the public against deceptive Made in USA claims. What are the key points in the final rule? The FTC rule prohibits marketers from making unqualified made-in-USA claims on labels unless, one, final assembly or processing of the product occurs in the United States, two, all significant processing that goes into the product occurs in the United States, and three, all or virtually all ingredients or components of the product are made and sourced in the United States. Just so I'm clear, these requirements are not new. Is that correct? That is correct. These requirements are not new. The FTC stated that the rule is consistent with past FTC made in USA decisions since the 1940s. It recognizes the established principle that unqualified made in USA claims imply to consumers that no more than a de minimis or negligible amount of the product is of foreign origin. What is new is that the rule codifies the FTC's requirements for unqualified made in USA claims. The rule is codified at 16 CFR Part 323. By codifying the rule, the FTC has the ability to seek a broad range of penalties for violations of the rule, including consumer redress, damages, penalties, and other relief. 
The rule actually enables the FTC for the first time to seek civil penalties of up to $43,230 per violation of the rule. Does the rule apply to all made in USA claims, such as advertising copy or just physical labels on products? The rule does not apply to all made in USA claims. The FTC stated that the rule covers labels appearing in all contexts, for example, whether they appear on packaging or online. The FTC stated that this includes mail order and catalog advertising, including in online marketplaces that depict a product label. The FTC noted that it will continue to bring enforcement actions against marketers that make deceptive beta and USA claims falling outside the rule under Section 5 of the FTC Act. The rule applies to unqualified beta and USA claims only. It does not apply to qualified claims. Examples of qualified claims are assembled in USA of U.S. and imported parts, claims indicating the amount of U.S. content, such as 60% U.S. content, claims indicating that parts or materials are imported, such as made in USA from imported leather, and claims about specific processes or parts, such as claims that a product is designed, painted, or written in the United States. Does a rule specify what percentage of a product must be made in the U.S.? or a specific percentage of manufacturing costs that must be attributable to U.S. costs for a marketer to make an unqualified made-in-USA claim? No, it doesn't. The FTC had issued the proposed rule for public comment, and some commenters had argued that the FTC should provide marketers greater certainty by promulgating a bright-line rule outlining a specific percentage of manufacturing costs that must be attributable to U.S. costs to substantiate an unqualified claim. The FTC rejected this, stating that percentage-based right-line rules could allow deceptive unqualified claims in circumstances where the low cost of the foreign input does not correlate to the importance of that input to consumers. So, for example, the FTC said that unqualified made-in-USA claims for watches that incorporate imported movements may mislead consumers because even though the cost of an imported movement is often low compared to the overall cost to manufacture a watch, consumers may place a premium on the origin and quality of the movement and consider the failure to disclose the foreign origin of this component to be material to their purchasing decision. Can marketers rely on information from suppliers about the domestic content in the parts, components, and other elements they produce when making made-in-USA claims? Yes, under certain circumstances. The FTC stated that it will continue to advise marketers that they can rely on information provided in good faith from suppliers about domestic content and the parts, components, and other elements they produce when making made-in-USA claims. The FTC also stated that it will continue to conserve enforcement resources for intentional, repeated, or egregious offenders and also that it will continue to provide informal staff counseling where appropriate. Thank you, Jeff. For the last two topics we will cover in this episode, both of which relate to privacy issues, I enlisted Brandon's help to answer our listeners' questions. Brandon, privacy continues to be a hot topic in 2021, and I have two questions for you from our listeners. First, state legislatures have been quite active in the past 12 months in the privacy area, and it's no longer just California that companies have to worry about. Could you give us a quick overview of the status of the new state privacy laws, when they go into effect, and what companies can or should do now to prepare? 
Sure. So state lawmakers have been quite busy indeed. And in the case of California, it was state voters have been quite busy indeed. I've taken to calling the year 2023 the year of data privacy. That's because at least as of right now, we have three comprehensive privacy laws that will go into effect on New Year's Day of 2023. And at the steady rate that state legislatures have been passing these laws, we may yet have a few more comprehensive privacy laws go into effect in 2023 or perhaps 2024. So what are those laws? I call them comprehensive privacy laws because they all endeavor to cut across regulated industries. They don't single out specific industries or even specific data sets. They try to be applicable broadly to almost any business that hits the applicability thresholds of the statute. So what are those laws? The first is the CPRA. This stands for the California Privacy Rights Act, and it's actually an amendment and an extension of the current California Consumer Privacy Act, or the CCPA, which I'm sure all of our listeners have heard about at this point. The CPRA was passed by California voters in last year's general election, and as I said, will go into effect in 2023. The two other laws we have passed fairly quickly and honestly without much fanfare in early 2021, and those were in Virginia and Colorado. Their official names are the Virginia Consumer Data Protection Act, which has a bit of an unwieldy acronym, VCDPA, (laughs) and the Colorado Privacy Act, which has a more simple acronym, CPA. Are these three state laws that you mentioned similar in terms of what companies need to watch out for? No, they're not all the same. We've been working with clients to start thinking about these laws. And what I tell them is that they're similar enough to really represent individual schedules and an overarching privacy governance program, but they have their own nuances. For example, the scope of an exemption might be different among the laws. The specific data that's being regulated might be slightly different under the three laws, or the amount of time required to respond to a data subject request might be different among the three laws. So sitting here today, I like to talk about the big changes that are on the horizon that are going to likely have a material effect on certain businesses, as opposed to some of the more specific nuances between the laws. These need to be taken into consideration now, whether you're a business looking to sign a new digital advertising deal, looking to acquire a new company or business line, or simply budgeting out a compliance program. So what are these big themes you're referring to? One, explicit consent. For the first time outside of certain laws like HIPAA, businesses in Virginia and Colorado are going to be required to obtain explicit consent from consumers before they collect sensitive personal data. This is absolutely huge. It's a game changer for anybody outside of European data privacy laws. And as we know from those European laws, consent can be fairly tricky. It often needs to be explicit or express, and it must be specific to the data and purpose of collection, and it typically needs to be revocable in some way. Another major development is what I call governance with teeth. So these are ways that these new laws essentially codify what previously has just been a best practice in privacy management. And those are things like the failure to properly minimize your data, the failure to properly limit your use of data to designated purposes, 
or your failure to conduct a data protection impact assessment or DPA, which is basically a procedural step that you're supposed to take before undertaking certain risky data processing activities. So these all now are going to be their own violations of state statute if a regulator believes that they have seen a violation. And I would say the last really major change is what's going on with global privacy controls or GPCs. All three laws are making varying movements towards requiring websites to honor automated browser controls or global privacy controls or GPCs. And this will be a game changer for certain digital advertisers and others that are relying on web tracking technologies. Keeping up with these new laws will certainly keep every privacy team in the country quite busy for some time. Another question I have for you is about cookie deprecation. We've certainly been hearing a lot about this in the news. What does this mean for advertisers and what should they do, if anything, to mitigate any negative impact from this industry development? Sure. So it's quite a hot topic. And I do still think that it's best understood as an industry trend and not necessarily a legal trend. This is something that has come about, yes, partly because of increasing privacy regulation in California and in other jurisdictions, whether it's the requirement for more detailed disclosures regarding the use of cookies or the right to opt out of the use of third-party cookies. However, these legal developments are really less dramatic than what we see occurring when major tech companies like Google and Apple take measures to attempt to phase out cookies and similar trackers completely. So what we're seeing, again, looking at the horizon is really the trend is an increasing reliance on first party data. Environments such as walled garden room environments where really you're able to track users activity within a specific and defined setting. And the result is that technologies and added solutions that are purely reliant on cookies or other unique identifiers are simply going to be subject to increasing limitations. They may not be phased out, but what we're seeing are increasing limitations. And those limitations are caused both by certain industry actors and also by privacy laws, including the ones that we've been tracking in California, Virginia, and Colorado. I'd like to thank Jeff, Jesse, and Brandon for sharing their perspectives on the new CARO guidelines, Made in USA labeling rules, and important state privacy law updates. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for this special anniversary episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. We discussed quite a few topics in today's episode, and we'll continue to cover important updates related to the various issues in the coming months. Please visit this episode's caption to access contact information for our guests today and additional resources related to this episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.